If you come to Thessalonians or Timothy, just keep going a little bit more to the right. If you're in James or First or Second John, you've gone just a little too far. Hebrews chapter two. And as I was thinking about this, the first day of the new year, I said, what better thing, I thought, what better thing to do than to, to focus in on the centrality of Christ as we celebrate communion today? Because this is the most important thing. The thing that will take us through this year, through the good things and the difficult things of this year, when all our hope and all our trust is in him because of his finished work on the cross. The power of the risen Savior. As we do that, let's, uh, let's pray together. Kind Father, we bow in your presence now. And we are so grateful for sending the Lord Jesus. We're grateful, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to come. We're grateful that as you ascended to the right hand of the Father, you said, I'm going to send another, a comforter, one who will point you to truth, who will convict you, who will guide you, who will point you to Jesus. And so we welcome you here today, triune God. And we pray that you would speak into our hearts as only you can. We invite you to be exalted as we celebrate communion together this morning, as we acknowledge Jesus as the one who did all that we've been singing about and conquered sin and death. So may you be exalted through this time together in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you know... Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. We're, we so welcome you to share our communion table with us together. If you haven't picked up one of the little element containers out in the lobby, we invite you to do that. And ironically, I forgot to grab mine. My trusty assistant is bringing me mine right now. Thank you so much. There is a gluten-free option for those that might need it on the back table in the back. But we welcome you to join us as we move into communion now. In a moment, we're going to read a passage. It's all about power. And sometimes as human beings, we think of ourselves as incredibly powerful, and to a certain extent, we really are. God, everything comes from him, and he's given us the raw materials for us to create things and to manipulate things and to use things. And the accomplishments of human beings are significant, all given to us by a loving heavenly father. Having said all that, we are still helpless when it comes to overcoming death, when it comes to overcoming the fear of death, and for many people as well, the fear of life. And with all this in mind, the writer to the Hebrews writes to us, beginning in chapter two, I'm just gonna read part of verse six and stop for a moment before we carry on. Hebrews chapter two. And the writer to the Hebrews says, what is man that you are mindful of him? And it's this rhetorical question that he offers. He's saying, it's, it's a little hard for me to grasp. Why is it? that the great God that created all of the universe and sustains all the universe, we were singing about that in some of the songs earlier. How is it that this great God stoops and is so concerned 
with human beings. Yes, we are significant, but compared to him, somewhat insignificant. And what is it about us that you are so concerned that you have placed us in this position where Jesus died for us and that we matter to you? He goes on to uh, quote from in that passage from Psalm 8. And he says, this great God has made us a little lower in creation to the angels and yet has given us significant responsibilities and great dignity and said, we matter. We matter to the God of the universe. With all this in mind, let's continue reading in Hebrews chapter two. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. Again, he says, here am I and the children of God and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he was made to be like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when we are, he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted." Verse nine says, but we see Jesus. And you know, in all that goes on in our life, it's easy to lose sight of him. And so I think this is a crucial reminder to keep our focus on as we head into the new year, that we don't wanna ever lose sight of the centrality of Christ in our life. And this is one of the reasons we need the table. It reminds us, it's one of the healthy habits we practice as a church. Typically, at the beginning of each month, the first Sunday, we come back to the table, to the centrality of Christ, and we're reminded to worship him. We're reminded to put him first in our life. And this is why scripture says, as often as you do this, you do it 
in remembrance of me. The table reminds us where the real power of the universe lies. Not anywhere else, not in some human being, not in some philosophy. It lies in the person represented by the table. Let me reread to you verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So how do we see Jesus in this passage? I'm going to suggest there's several ways, several different ideas that come out about how we are to see Jesus. And the first one would be as a crowned Savior. He's crowned because of his suffering, it says in verse 9. Crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death for you. You know, there's a couple of different Hebrew words that the writer to Hebrews, a couple of different Greek words, rather, that the Hebrew writer could have used in this case. Um, Both that are translated crown when we come to English. One of them is used to describe a king's crown, and we often think of it like a diadem. And this is something a person receives because of an inheritance. They are born into a certain family at the right time and in the right birth order so that they might receive a royal diadem, just like King Charles just did. This is not the Greek word the Hebrew writer uses. He uses the other one, which is a reward given at an athletic competition, something that a person receives because they've earned it. And so the passage is saying, Jesus earned this crown. He's a crowned savior because of what he did for you. And it says this again in verse 10, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, sometimes when we see that word perfect in verse 10, we get a little concerned because it somehow, when you first read it, seems to be suggesting that Jesus had to become perfect in this process. And this is an important idea about how to understand scripture. You have to look at the entire context on either side of it, the book itself, and all of scriptures. And so we know from the other scriptures that Jesus was perfect. And so the idea of perfect in this context means to accomplish or to fulfill. And so he comes on mission. This is something you hear me talk about often. He comes on mission to complete the mission that his father had given it. And he did it through his suffering and his death. And he experienced all this not only in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense as well. When all of our sin, the book of Isaiah says, was laid on him in a, in a spiritual sense, in an emotional sense, and the trauma of one who had never known sin, to have all of my sin and all of your sin laid on him. It's beyond imagination to think about how traumatic that was for him. And so we remember the power of the cross when we come to the table because Jesus is a crowned savior. 
because of what he willingly went through for each one of us. When you share in the communion elements in just a few minutes' time, remember the crowned Savior who did what he did for you. He's also a conquering Savior. And this is, again, stuff that we were singing about. If you were noticing the words that we were singing about and reading about earlier in the passage, because of who he overcame, we read about this in verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared, speaking of Jesus, in their humanity, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Again, it's interesting in light of, and we referenced this earlier, but it's interesting in light of all of human accomplishments, and I don't belittle them for one moment. We are blessed to live where we live, and in the era, in the time in history where we live, we are the beneficiaries of so many wonderful things that God has enabled human beings to accomplish. And so we should be grateful that we're able to access those things, things that that make life sustainable and in many ways uh, wonderful. But with all the advances, all the power, all the creativity, we continue to remain powerless to remove death, to remove the fear of death, that so many people exist with. And I would suggest even the fear of life. But Jesus does not, this passage says, does not technically overcome death through his death. He overcomes death by his resurrection. But the death, it says in verse 14 of Jesus, destroyed him who has the power of death. That is the devil. Now, God ultimately decides who lives and dies and exactly when. And if we ever try to tamper with that, that's not our place to do it. But Satan has the power of death in the sense that he leads us to temptation, which we then make the choice to sin, which then ultimately leads to death. And he has the power in that sense to wield death as a weapon to cripple people, particularly through fear. And this passage reminds us the death of Christ crushes and overwhelms the fear of death. How often do we hear people say, I'm not so concerned about dying, it's the process of leading up to it. And they're held in the grip of that fear of death. And we don't like to think about this. We don't like to talk about this very often. You know, I read recently that in North America, we spend hundreds of billions of dollars a year on leisure. And it's continuing to grow, and people are pouring more and more time and money and energy into leisure and into sports. We spend more money on those things than national defense, medical research, and scientific advancement. Now, I enjoy leisure. Probably everyone here, to one degree or another, enjoys it as well. But I would suggest that some people focus so much on that in every spare waking moment that they possibly can, 
because it provides for them a great narcotic effect. I don't have to think about the reality that one day I'm going to die. I don't have to think about the serious aspects of life if I just spend a predominant amount of time paying for and pursuing and involving myself in leisure. And this passage says, Jesus, the conquering Savior, died to take away the uncertainty, to remove the fear of death. Now, we still grieve when a person dies. My mom died just two years ago, and I still feel the pain of that. And I know some of you have loved ones that are approaching that or have gone through that, and so we still grieve. But when they know Christ, as my mom did, and I would pray for those people in your life as well, that they know Christ and have surrendered their life to him and know him as Savior and Lord. The Bible then says in 1 Corinthians 15, yes, we grieve, but we grieve in a different way because we miss them and we know we're temporarily separated from them, but we know they've gone to be with the one that perfectly loves them a place where there's no more darkness, Revelation says, no more sin, no more tears, no more pain, no more wrong motives. And so we grieve, but we grieve differently because Christ has removed that fear and he has conquered Satan. When we come to the table, We have much to be grateful for because we serve a conquering Savior who says you don't have to be afraid anymore. He's also a a comforting Savior, very comforting Savior. Verses 17 and 18. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. This very personal sacrifice Christ made with you in mind, not just the mass of humanity, with you in mind, he made personal atonement for your sin, for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, is able to help those who are being tempted. We have this comforting Savior. How can God, in whom resides all of the power of the universe, as the passage said earlier, as we sang about earlier, how can he comfort us? It says, the writer of the Hebrews says, Jesus knows exactly how you feel. He doesn't try to imagine it. He, he almost becomes redundant about this. He's adamant to the point of redundancy that Jesus knows exactly how you feel. He talks about it again in chapter four, verse 15. He is like us in every way. In every way. He gets us. Now, sometimes people, when they think about these concepts, they might think in terms like this. They might think of, it's kind of like, perhaps like a politician that goes to visit, who's campaigning, who goes to the factory and puts on the hard hat and walks amongst the people that are working in the factory 
to be one of the people. And it's a good idea to try and do those kinds of things. Or the social worker that goes to the inner city to spend some time with homeless people. Or the general who um, eats a meal with his enlisted personnel in their mess hall. And all of them are trying to communicate the message, I can identify with you, I want to identify with you, I can relate to you. The problem is, as good as their intentions might be, is that the politician then takes off his hat, his or her hat, and goes back to their office. The social worker understands more deeply what the homeless person's going through, but the social worker that night then goes back to their own bed. And the general ends up eating in the officer's mess later in the day. And so try as they might, the three of them can't really understand and their participation is partial, even though it's motivated well. The book of Hebrews says, Jesus' participation was complete. He was tempted, but because he was the spirit-filled God-man, he did not sin. Jesus didn't sin because he was God. He didn't sin because he was the spirit-filled God-man, and he chose not to. He grew up with Mary and Joseph as his parents. He would have had skin knees, just like all of us did when we were a kid. He probably bashed his thumb with the wooden mallet a few times when he worked in his dad's carpentry shop. It's entirely likely that when he was a teenager, there was a girl that he had a crush on. He would have had, like many people do, not everyone, but many people do, a natural desire to be married. Think about how difficult it would have been growing up. He would have been ridiculed mercilessly because he didn't sin. Think about how the other children in the community would have treated him. Think about how his siblings would have treated him. Can you imagine growing up with someone that did not sin? Think about how difficult, on one hand, it would have been wonderful as a parent to have a child like that, but at the same time, it would have been incredibly difficult. This passage says, he gets you all the way. Participated in life. And when we are hurting, when we want more than well-meaning advice and cliches that may all be true, but when we're hurting, what we really want is the power of presence of another human being. We want someone who will grieve with us if we're grieving, someone who will comfort us, someone who actually understands and this passage says, Jesus does. He does. And that he's a merciful and faithful high priest. Now this is in contrast to the Jewish high priests at that time who were depicted as people who were not to show their feelings. One of the rabbis wrote this. He will have, speaking of the Jewish high priest, he will have his pity under control. And so they were invited, they were encouraged to be somewhat aloof from the people. Not so with Jesus. 
Jesus is the merciful high priest because he really understands. He understands what it means to be rejected. He understands what it means to be tempted. He understands what it means to be lonely. He lived in many ways a lonely life. He understands what it means to sacrifice everything, to go through death. And all of these things from people that were typically profoundly ungrateful. This table represents the God who knows how you feel, who knows what you're experiencing, who loves you in a way that words can't express. So friends, if you want your life to start right on January 1st as you move forward, I invite you to join me in worshiping a crowned savior who suffered for you so you didn't have to. A conquering savior who overcame death and destroyed the evil one. Always remember this. When you are a child of God, when you have surrendered your life to Jesus, as difficult as life can be at points, remember, we win because of Christ. He has won the victory. We win. And he is a comforting savior who can relate to you. The power of the cross brings us back to who is central in life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are going to share communion now. And again, as I said earlier, I'm going to invite the worship team to join me now. If you know Christ as your Savior and as the Lord of your life, you don't have to be a member of this church. If you're visiting with us today, if you know Jesus as Savior and Lord, we invite you to join us at the table. What we're going to do is we're going to take some time to contemplate. There's an invitation in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, an invitation as you come to the communion table to contemplate. I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to take some time to just silently reflect. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. So what I'm going to invite you to do is to just pray and say, Lord, is there anything in my life that I've been saying no to you about? Because I'm open right now. I'm open. And he will, if there's something, and there may not be at this point, but if there's something, it will be very specific. You always hear me say this. It'll never be vague. It'll never be general. It'll be very specific. And the Spirit of God will say, you know, Scott, that's one thing that you did that you've never repented of and needs to be forgiven and, and uh, needs to be dealt with appropriately. And if he puts his finger on that, I encourage you to just let the Spirit of God work in your life and you respond and invite 
his forgiveness and receive his direction on that. And so we're going to take a couple of minutes of just silence. Consider that as we move into taking the elements together. Let's do that. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you went all the way for us, all the way. You didn't hold back one iota. And we are so deeply grateful for the forgiveness that you purchased by being the atoning one for my sin, for our sin. Thank you for the freedom that you offer of being forgiven and being cleansed. And a God who, once he forgives, never brings it back up again. You never throw it back in our face. It's just another thing about you that we love and we appreciate and we worship you for today. So Lord, as we move into sharing these elements together, we are so very grateful for your work on our behalf. And we pray these things now in Jesus' precious name. what we're going to do is we're going to take the first element, the bread. And there's going to be a song that's going to come on the screen, one of the songs we sang earlier. It's going to be quieter, softer, volume down a little bit. You're welcome to join in and sing, but you don't have to. If you want to just reflect on the fact that the bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for you, Feel free to just do that. And during the course of that song, whenever you feel led, just go ahead and take the bread. Let me read to you the verses that celebrate this from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.